It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. The latest moments go. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West coming up shortly. He's running things in Texas on the Republican side. We'll be resigning. Is he going to run for governor? We'll discuss that. Senator Tom Cotton waiting in the wings. Some breaking news stories. We'll following it all. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Weren't the Chinese engaged in a cover-up? Well, that wasn't our task, to find out if China had covered up the origin issue. No, no, I know. I'm just saying, doesn't that make you wonder? We didn't see any evidence of any um, false reporting or cover-up in the work that we did in China. Oh, it's amazing. Peter Daszak, the jig is up, closing in. First Fauci feeling the heat and showing some anger. And Peter Daszak now, a China apologist with links to the Wuhan lab, has been booted from the COVID commission for conflicts of interest. Number two. As the reopening continues, shifts in demand can be large and rapid, and bottlenecks, hiring difficulties, and other constraints could continue to limit how quickly supply can adjust, raising the possibility that inflation could turn out to be higher and more persistent than we expect. Uh, wow. Uh, what are you doing? With the worst inflation plaguing our economy, the Biden team looking to add possibly $6 trillion and is fruitlessly trying to sell us a radical voting reform measure, which will go down in flames today. Here's hoping it all fails. Number one. He'd be approaching this a little differently than he did perhaps in 94 when there was another prime wave that Democrats responded to. I mean, can you talk to how his approach might change? A great deal of the crime we're seeing as a result of gun violence. Uh, they, <laughs> Jen Psaki, crime crisis has rightly caught the attention of the White House, but their approach to solving it is all wrong. As we blame the gun, not the shooter, we blame the cop, not the criminal. And joining us now uh, is Senator Tom Cotton. Senator, uh, front and center on Wednesday, they're going to come out with uh, criminal justice reform or some type of it, and it looks like they're going to focus on the number of guns in our country. Would that tackle the problem? <laughs> Brian, it's good to be on with you. And uh, no, what Joe Biden is sure to propose on Wednesday will not solve the crime wave that has been unleashed across the country because of failed liberal policies. You know, Brian, I'm giving a major speech on criminal justice on Friday at the Manhattan Institute. Uh, maybe uh, Joe Biden got wind uh, that I was going to speak on Friday if you wanted to rush out and address what I was going to say, which is similar to what I said five years ago. The reason why we have a crime wave in this country is that liberals are letting serious, repeat, violent felons out of prison early or not sentencing the prison at all, and they are attacking the police as systematically inherently racist and refusing the police to allow the police to do their jobs. It's pretty simple, and most Americans understand it. I do, but not everybody. Here's a member of the Obama administration policing task force, Brittany Pankett. Cut three. This rising crime is not the fault of the movement. It's actually the fault of the police. Why should we keep funding systems and institutions that keep rendering themselves ineffective? It's about ensuring that the services that people need to ensure safe communities from the ground up are actually being funded and resourced to their full capacity. This rising crime is not the fault of the movement. It's actually the fault of the police, and this has been our point all along. We should be talking about gun control, livable wages, 
wages, fair housing, education. That's where we should be moving the money to to ensure truly safe streets. What do you think about a mindset like that and know that she's not alone? Well, she's insane and uh, she's not alone, but she also speaks for a very small minority as well. Brian, the vast majority of Americans don't want to defund the police. If anything, they want a larger police presence in their communities. And that goes doubly for minorities who often live in neighborhoods in large cities that have some of the biggest public safety challenges. If you want to see what would happen if you defund the police or abolish the police, let's recall what it was like in Seattle last summer in the so-called CHAZ when uh, anarchists and rioters and looters set up a six-block area in downtown Seattle and drove the police out of it. And Seattle's clueless mayor, Jenny Durkin, declared it a summer of love. Pretty quickly, you had robbings, you had burglaries, you had assaults, and in fact, you had people murdered as well. Many of those victims were black. Do the white liberals who run Seattle think that their lives mattered? Because that's an example of what happens when you defund the police, when you undercut the police, when you drive down their morale and you reduce their ranks. There's no question. I, I could do two segments with you on that, but I want to get to two other topics, one of which is is China. And yesterday or, or this morning, we wake up to the news of Peter Dosick. To me, he's been a disgrace from day one, doing the best he can to lace together what he considers the most prestigious scientist right away, puts him in a, you know, puts a letter in the Lancet Journal and talks about these scientists believe this came from an animal-to-animal uh, transfer, this COVID-2 virus that's killed 600,000 Americans. He was desperate to prove it. Listen to how he did not stand up. To me, he was exposed by Leslie Stahl. Cut 19. Weren't the Chinese engaged in a cover-up? They destroyed evidence. They punished scientists who were trying to give evidence on this very question of the origin. Well, that wasn't our task, to find out if China had covered up the origin issue. No, no, I know. I'm just saying, doesn't that make you wonder? We didn't see any evidence of any um, false reporting or cover-up in the work that we did in China. Were there Chinese government minders in the room? every time you were asking questions. There were Ministry of Foreign Affairs staff in the room throughout our stay, absolutely. They were there to make sure everything went smoothly from the China side. Or to make sure they weren't telling you the whole truth and nothing but the truth. You sit in a room with people who are scientists and you know what a scientific statement is and you know what a political statement is. Uh, We had no problem distinguishing between the two. Really? You sit in a room with minders in China, knowing you say the wrong thing, you are dead, but scientists can tell they're a human lie detector test. Yeah, yeah, Brian, it, it's easy to tell. Those guys sitting against the wall in the back row with their arms crossed, scowling, are the Chinese security agents, <laughs> ensuring that the so-called scientists don't step out of line. Peter Dozik is a disgraceful, abject apologist for the Chinese Communist Party. Party, a panda hugger of the worst sort. He should, he and his organization, the EcoHealth Alliance, should never get another dime of taxpayer dollars from Tony Fauci or any other government bureaucrat. It's well past time that he was removed from this commission because of his gross conflict of interest. You heard in that interview the way he always rushes to China's defense. 
Um, just as he was doing early last year, we now know from the emails that he was trading with Tony Fauci, trying to dispel any investigation whatsoever into the true origins of this virus. You know, circling the wagons, protecting Tony Fauci and Tony Fauci's agency and Chinese Communist Party labs in Wuhan. So he's gone from the committee, but not gone from the scene. I hope people realize they're beginning to peel away to get to the facts. Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's kept America tortured and tied down for the last 15 months, says he's walked on water in almost on every other network and every other medium. Here he is getting defensive with The New York Times yesterday. Cut 25. I put very little weight in the adulation and very little weight in the craziness of condemning me. Things change. So it isn't a question of being wrong. It's a question of going with the data as you have and being humble enough and flexible enough to change with the data. Is he just changing with the data? No. Tony Fauci is a Democratic activist in a white lab coat. Look, I I don't fault anyone for taking certain precautions early in this pandemic when it was unclear how the virus spread. I mean, it is, after all, a novel coronavirus. So if you recall, back in March and April of last year, lots of people were leaving their groceries in their garage. They were wiping down packages. I don't fault them at all. Um, We later learned that surface transmission almost never occurs. What I fault, fault Tony Fauci for is explicitly politicizing his advice and his guidance, not based on scientific data, but what he and Facebook and big tech thought the American people were ready to hear. He's admitted as much. He said that he consistently lowballed his estimates for what it would take to reach herd immunity, 70 percent. But then you start bumping up 75 to 80 to 85 to 90, not based on new scientific data, but based on what he thought the American people were ready to hear. Well, guess what? Tony Fauci has no clue what the American people are ready to hear. He was elected by no one to make those kind of decisions. He was appointed to give scientific advice, which he has not been doing in an honest and transparent fashion. That's why it's time for him to go. And if he won't resign, Joe Biden should fire him. Well, I'll put it this way. The more he speaks, the more he's going to be questioned. And uh, he's even going to start getting tough questions from friendly avenues. I think we're seeing a little bit less of him. He's had way too much power. And think about this, Senator. I know you do. Imagine if he came out and said, we're getting hit with a virus. I wish I could tell you exactly what's going to hit us, but I could not get clear answers from China. And I'm preparing now for SARS-1, and I hope the test is right. Oops, it is not. The CDC has the wrong test. we got to come up with another test. We're starting to disseminate what this virus is, and we're starting to get worried what's happening from Europe. He never did that. It's not going to be a problem. Masks are not going to work. Make sure you hose down all your stuff. Uh, China's been transparent. So far, there hasn't been a problem. You're not going to vilify him. You're not going to be able to get anything. They're going to get defensive. That's not what he did. All he, he did. Brian, all... He should. Yep. He should have done exactly what you said and been honest with the American people. Yes. Made clear what we know and what we don't know. Just take the mask question. Um, he could have simply said at the very beginning, I, I, "We don't know if masks will work. They won't hurt." But my fellow Americans, our doctors and our nurses on the front line need these masks. We have a shortage. While we have a shortage, please don't go out and buy and hoard them. Yeah. Here's I think a most Americans would have listened to that and would have would have done their patriot, what their patriotic duty suggested, which is allowed medical professionals to get medical supplies while they're in short supply. So I want but you nope, to... Dr. Fauci thought he knew better. So I want you to hear this interview with the Axios. Jonathan Swan talked to Imran Khan, who's president of uh, the prime minister of Pakistan, Muslim. Right. 
He is so in bed with China with this Belt and Road program. Here's what, how, how he described China, despite the fact that he's killed, they've killed thousands of Pakistanis, cut 30. Why are you so outspoken about Islamophobia in Europe and the United States, but totally silent about the genocide of Muslims in Western China? What our conversations have been with the Chinese, this is not the case, according to them. Whatever issues we have with the Chinese, we speak to them behind closed doors. China has been one of the greatest friends to us in our most difficult times. When we were really struggling, our economy was struggling, China came to our rescue. Whatever issues we have, we speak behind closed doors. Really? Isn't that fascinating? Uh, it, it is, Brian, and it's just a, a, a perverse example of China's insidious influence around the globe. You know, Imran Khan beats his chest about so-called Islamophobia uh, in North America and Europe and the Philippines and elsewhere, but he won't say a word about a mass genocide happening right across his border where religious minorities are being hoarded into concentration camps and women are being raped if they're not being sterilized in a form of ethnic cleansing. Why? Because he gets billions of dollars from the Chinese Communist Party. But it's not just in Pakistan, Brian. It happens everywhere in the United States. Chinese money is riddled throughout Washington organizations. China's premier, when he came to negotiate with Donald Trump in the final stages of a trade deal last year, met with executives of major American banks. Hollywood studios will not make China a bad guy in a movie because they want access to the Chinese market. Do you really think uh, news networks like ABC, which is controlled by Disney, will report uh, credibly on China when Disney wants access to the Chinese market? What you saw in Imran Khan's interview there is just more open than what you see in uh, industries across America who are deeply compromised by China, Chinese money and Chinese influence. So, you know what, Tom, uh, Senator, I, I do agree with President Biden. It's a good idea. Come out with your belt and come out with your Build Back Better world plan. Let's see if we can get together money from Western democracies and tell these struggling countries you don't have to sign your life away with China, who are going to take your main ports and your main thoroughfares and, like they did in Brazil, and they're going to own you. So that's good. Well, we got to see some action behind it. But if you think that uh, Imran Khan didn't sell his soul in selling out the Uyghurs, it gets worse. Cut 32. This is a grotesquely large human rights atrocity. I would... First of all, I'm not sure about that because our conversations, our conversations with the Chinese, this is not the picture sure that, that comes that. from that side. So just to put a fine point on this, you are not in any way concerned about the Muslim Uyghurs in Xinjiang? Our discussions with Chinese will always be behind closed doors. What a loser, right? I mean, he stands for nothing. If you, if you guys didn't put the Koran back right, there'll be r- riots around the globe. Remember what happened on 9-11 a few years ago in, uh, in Libya. Yeah, Brian. And uh, again, I mean, it's not Imran Khan didn't cover himself in glory there in a self-appointed role of defending the Muslim faithful around the world. Uh, but the bigger story for our country, I think, um, is the Chinese influence that he simply represented in very uh, direct and blunt terms. And it happens in America as well. And we have to stop it. And Marco Rubio is pushing forward on some sanctions against uh, China if they don't come forward, which they're not going to do. And I, I imagine you're on the same page with the senator from Florida. Yeah, we need to impose real consequences on China uh, for refusing to cooperate um, with the origins uh, of this virus. 
and for what they're doing, you know, in Hong Kong, you know, they just they're about to shut down one of its venerable uh, newspapers, uh, and what they're continuing to, to do to those minorities in their western provinces. Senator, you got a lot on your plate. Thanks so much for being there. Thank you, Brian. Good to be on with you as always. All right, great. Uh, listen, we come back. Your turn. One, uh, we have a new number now. Do we, Allison? Okay. Uh, when we come back, it'll be me. Back in a moment. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first, only on the Brian Kilmeade Show. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. Information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back. Uh, there's so much to go on. I had not, I only read, I did not hear the interview uh, that Jonathan Swan did with the president of Pakistan. But think about this all you hear about is the dedication uh, of those in the Muslim faith. They're willing to give up it all and go live in a cave to follow bin Laden because they have to do what's good for fundamental Muslims, right? But except for I don't see even a protest in front of the Chinese embassy after they, after they round up a million Uyghurs and sterilize them, torture them beyond belief. They pick them up. They put them in prison camps, essentially enslave them. But don't worry about it. They built me a tunnel. They built me a port. They wrote me a check. So China gets a pass. What's going on here? Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. I mean, all the U.S. does is give around the world. They don't own. They don't stay. They leave. We go into Iraq. We leave. Go into Afghanistan. Sadly, we're leaving too soon. We're not looking to own. We don't take any of their natural resources. China goes in. They make big checks. They build big buildings. And they stay and own. And now when you take Muslim Uyghurs, you would think, well, money doesn't, uh, money doesn't trump religion. Clearly does. 
And that's the same thing. Where's the silence? Where's where are the Egyptians acting uh, uh, acting up? Where you know what about the Iranians? How about the Muslim Iranians? Are they upset with China? No, they take all the trade in the world from China. The, the China single handedly sustained them and circumvented our, our sanctions. You could do whatever you want to Muslims if you pay them, if you pay other governments money. That's pretty clear. When we come back, uh, what's the latest with Texas? What about Nebraska? Congratulations to them. They're sending their National Guard over to help out Texas, joining Florida and Idaho and some other neighboring states and Arizona at the border because Joe Biden won't and Kamala Harris won't even answer the call. You're listening to Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you did. And are. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. This rising crime is not the fault of the movement. It's actually the fault of the police. Why should we keep funding systems and institutions that keep rendering themselves ineffective? It's about ensuring that the services that people need to ensure safe communities from the ground up are actually being funded and resourced to their full capacity. This rising crime is not the fault of the movement. It's actually the fault of the police, and this has been our point all along. We should be talking about gun control, livable wages, fair housing, education. That's where we should be moving the money to to ensure truly safe streets. Yes, uh, keep that focus on education when you're being carjacked or beaten, pistol-whipped, or in the crossfire in Chicago, or if you're an 8-year-old going to a convenience store and you find out there's somebody being assassinated in front of you. Yes, keep that in mind. It's all the police's fault. That is the school of thought from learned people, former member of the Obama Policing Task Force. Now, this is how bad crime is getting in America, and it is getting really bad. They are going to be a press conference the president's going to have on Wednesday, at which time he's going to tell us his approach. And we have a preview. It's all about the guns. In Atlanta, shootings were up, uh, excuse me, uh, homicides were up 58%. uh, Crime is up 13% in New York. It was just so high the year before, too. Portland up 533%. Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Chicago up double figures. Joining us now, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. Colonel, do you agree that it's really the police's fault that crime's up? No, of course it's not the police's fault. It's great to be with you, Brian, and understand this, that uh, the left says we don't want the police. We want to defund the police, get rid of the police, and then crime goes up, and now all of a sudden they say it's the police's fault when you're saying get rid of the police. Case in point, down in Austin, Texas, where we have a very far-left progressive uh, city council, they defunded the police down there by $150 million. Right. Uh, yeah, a million dollars. And what has happened in Austin, you've seen an increase increase of 63 to 64% violent crime. Just a couple of weeks ago, you had a drive-by shooting downtown Austin where 12 people were shot. So now, if you're telling me, to, telling the police to get off the streets, we don't want you, and all of a sudden that, that void that you created is going to be filled by something, it's being filled by crime, now you're going to say it's the police's fault when you told them to go away. And furthermore, look at all these district attorneys that you have around the country in these major urban population centers. A lot of them being, have been funded in their campaigns by George Soros, they're releasing criminals. 
back onto the streets. So you're releasing criminals onto the streets. You're telling the police, we don't want you. Then crime goes up, but you say it's the police's fault. This is that circular argument that the left is trying to proliferate out there that's going to cause them to fail because people care about their safety and security. The left does not care about that. Well, it's amazing. They're going to address it on Wednesday, and he knows because to fund the police, the Democratic autopsy said the single uh, thing that hurt them the most was that statement, that mantra, that belief that defunding the police was where we should go as a country. America was not ready for that. But there were two elections, and you know this because you're running the Texas GOP for a few more months. Uh, there was a New Mexico congressional election for an emergency, uh, special election, and there was another one in Philadelphia for a district attorney. And both times the Republican ran as a law and order candidate and lost. Yeah. And and that is amazing to you in that the left is choosing uh, not to stand up for the rule of law, not for law and order. But the people, you know, truthfully, they are starting to see the ramifications of that, and they're starting to say, this is not what we want. I, I just heard the the the, uh, the quote from the woman that's talking about we need, you know, better uh, education and, and to, to do better in schools. The teachers' unions don't want to teach our kids. You can't get the schools open up. And so these kids that have to stay at home, especially in your underprivileged neighborhoods and communities, which already have failing schools, as you saw with the black community that came out and complained about the schools there in Queens, in that borough there where they are failing the kids in math and and reading. So all the things that the left is talking about is, is, again, it's this circular argument. They are destroying communities. They are destroying education opportunities. They are lessening safety and security. They're releasing criminals onto the street. And I will tell you that when they talk about gun control, these major urban population centers, Chicago has some of the most strictest gun control laws around. But yet, what did you see happen this past weekend? I believe there were 50-some-odd shootings. Right. You know why? They say the guns are coming from Indiana. Uh, uh, the yeah. mayor of Atlanta said the problem is our governor, the, their governor opened up too quick. Therefore, everyone came to Atlanta to commit crimes uh, and come and drink and party. I mean, do, this, these, some of these comments should have a laugh track with them. Do you know if you wanted to hurt our country directly, these are the type of things you would do. We're being killed from the inside. I mean, this, mm-hmm. is, this is stuff that the Soviet Union would hope for during the Cold War, where we'd start coming apart by our own idiocy. Well, that's the whole point of it, where we would, uh, you know, fight against ourselves. Abraham Lincoln said, a house divided shall not stand. And we see that house being uh, torn apart, its foundations being taken apart. But again, what we see these problems and where we see these problems are in all of these major urban population centers that have been under Democrat control 50, 60, I don't know how many years. But yet they want to continue to say that, no, it's not our fault. It's, It's someone else's fault. It's Governor Kemp for opening up the state so that we can have better economic opportunities, economic opportunities, get our businesses going. No, the criminals are now coming to Georgia because, you know, Governor Kemp opened it up. That's the most insidious, absurd thing I've ever said, ever heard. So in that case in point, then you should have the exact same thing in Florida. You should have the exact same thing in all the other red states that have opened up. But instead, what do you see? You see the worst economic uh, performances in the blue states that continue to be closed down. Yeah, a couple other things, Bill. 
before we let you go, uh, Pete Riggetts, uh, the governor of Nebraska, mm-hmm. said Nebraska is stepping up to help Texas respond to the ongoing crisis, the disastrous policy the Biden-Harris administration created. Uh, while the federal government has fallen short, Nebraska is happy to step up and provide assistance to Texas as they work to protect their communities. So they're going to be sending, I believe, some National Guard and anything else you need is there – when these – when Florida and Idaho and states like Nebraska send people, is there a place for them to go so they don't end up sitting around like they did in Washington? Well, you know, the only person that can really ask answer that question would be the governor and how they're going to deploy them. But I will tell you this, before I would go asking other states uh, to, to give resources, I would make sure that I'm using all of my available resources. We have not had a full deployment and mobilization of the Texas National Guard nor the Texas State Guard. Uh, you can put all of those resources that you have at your disposal along the border to have them, break, uh, you know, blocking those infiltration routes to interdict all of these flow and to free up uh, the ability for the Customs and Border Patrol agents to do what they need to do. So you, but, you yeah, fault Brian, the governor. You fault the governor. I, I, I tell you what, you can talk about putting a wall out there, but I don't see us with our National Guard being mobilized. And guess what? We did that previously under Rick Perry's administration. So I'm not saying anything that has never been done before. So why haven't we done that instead of going begging hat in hand for other states to come down here and uh, to Texas as aid? I'm not going to fault these governors like Governor Ricketts and also Governor DeSantis because this is a crisis that will affect their states. But most importantly, we should be doing everything possible here. We can deputize citizens here in Texas that can help our law enforcement agencies, especially in these smaller uh, Rio Grande Valley uh, Sheriff's Departments that need that type of help. So let's expend all of those resources and all of those options here before we have people coming down here and they're sitting around saying, okay, what do you want us to do? Exit question. Uh, do you know today they're going to vote on the For the People Act, which is going to nationalize election, finance, uh, mm-hmm. publicly finance Uh, anybody's campaign, double whatever they were able to do using taxpayer dollars. They would take away the rights to gerrymander within the state. So we would tell the people of Texas, Mm -hmm. uh, Washington would tell the people of Texas how they're breaking up their districts. They do it through a computer model, air quotes. Mm -hmm. So just uh, 900 pages of of, uh, hell, uh, anti-constitutional rhetoric. But it's not it's going to get voted on. Every Democrat will probably vote for it outside mansion and cinema. Here's what they're saying about Republicans who are sitting it out. Cut 16. These policies have one purpose and one purpose only, making it harder for younger, poorer, non-white, and typically Democratic voters to have to access the ballot. Shame, shame, shame. And this is why when the states start to enact these kinds of voter suppression laws, what I call steal your vote laws, the federal government comes in, and that was what the Voting Rights Act was all about. What we are trying to do is preserve democracy. Mm-hmm. And what Republican legislatures and governors are doing in the most disgraceful way imaginable is to try to deny people of color, young people, poor people, the right to vote, people with disabilities. So it's so weird to him talk about democracy. The socialist, Hirono, one of the worst human beings, I think. Mm-hmm. And then you begin with Senator Schumer, shame, 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 like we're on, we're on uh, Blue's Clues. So they, they, they can't even take themselves seriously. They knew this thing had no chance. Bring me inside the politics yeah. of this. 
Well, the inside the politics is that they are trying to demonize, denigrate, disparage anyone that believes that you should have a picture ID in order to be able to vote. So I would tell Ms. Hirono, uh, Senator Schumer, and also uh, Senator Sanders, then why do I need to have a picture ID to get on an airplane? Uh, is that not discriminatory against me as a, as a black man, uh, 60 years of age? I mean, should not just be trusted? to go into the airport should not be trusted to go anywhere without a picture ID. And I don't find it coincidental that all of a sudden we have an open borders policy in this administration. You have H.R. 1 and S. 1 saying that we don't need to have picture ID. We don't need to have voter registration uh, reviews at the county level. We, we're just going to take over elections at the federal government level. We're going to have online voter registration. All of these things that they're asking for at the time when they have opened up our borders, you can see exactly what the politics are behind this. They want to undermine our democracy. They want to undermine this constitutional republic. They want to have one-party rule in the United States of America. They're not going to be successful in doing it. And they don't have the enumerated power to take over elections. That is completely unconstitutional what they're trying to do. I know, but I just lost all faith in the Constitution, especially with the DACA. President Biden, President Obama came out and said, listen, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give these, uh, make it impossible to be able to expel anybody here uh, illegally just because because they were brought here as young kids. I know it's not constitutional, but hopefully we'll bring it up in Congress. And the court said it's constitutional. You can't overturn it. And that would have been the leverage used to maybe get some super comprehensive, get that wall built and comprehensive uh, immigration done. But so I have no faith in people that say, well, if it does ever pass and they get rid of the filibuster, it's unconstitutional. I'm not convinced the courts are going to help out here. Well, that's a very good point, because one of the things you have to realize is that uh, what the court basically said is that the president was an executive order. You make that into law? No. An executive order is not the same thing as law. Only legislators can create law. So DACA, which was done by executive action, executive order by Barack Obama, you know, a new president, anyone can come along and they can change that. They don't have to adhere to that. We are facing huge constitutional crises here in the United States of America, and it's about time that people wake up and understand that the people trying to undermine our Constitution – the progressive socialist left, the Democrat Party. Right. Uh, Republicans uh, fight back in an orderly way, say anytime they say it's about gender or skin color or economic attitude, it has nothing to do with that. It's about authentication and making sure the right people vote, making sure, therefore, your vote counts. That's it. It was pandemic changes going back. I don't know why they have trouble messaging that. Uh, Colonel, when are you going to decide what you're doing? Because I know you you resigned, but you're still you're running Texas GOP. Well, you know, the resignation takes effect on 11th of July, and as I tell people, you have to step down in order to step up. So uh, there will be a decision by the 11th of July. All right. Go get him, Senator. Oh, Senator, excuse me. Maybe that's what you're going to do. <laughs> uh, go get him, uh, Colonel. Thanks so much. You got it. God bless, man. All right. Uh, we're going to come back, and I'm going to ask you to call this number. You have a pen handy? So I do. one 888 1-888-788-9910. 1-888-788-9910. They call the Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base, it's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. A talk show that's real. 
This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The current um, burst of inflation we've seen um, reflects uh, the the difficulties of reopening an economy that's been shut down. I don't anticipate that it will be permanent, but we continue to monitor inflation data very carefully. Certainly for this year, inflation will be higher. She's a graduate of the Anthony Robbins uh, motivational course, Personal Power. Uh, That is the Secretary of Treasury uh, talking in a very boring political way in which she didn't talk Janet Yellen when she was at uh, the Fed. And she's saying, well, temporary for an economy that was shut down. The economy's been opened up. I mean, think about how long the economy's been opened up. I know in California you're just getting used to it. But two-thirds of it's been opened up a while. We are beginning to surge, and so are the prices of goods that we can't get any, and we keep spending. How the heck do you really claim to have this? I know both parties are guilty of debt. But here we are recovering without an emergency package, and they're still looking for more money. Get this. Remember the bipartisan deal that Mitt Romney, Joe Manchin, Kristen Cinema, Senator Portman, there's about 21 in all bipartisan, Dick Durbin, Lindsey Graham, have come up with spending a trillion dollars. Pretty good start. A lot of these programs in Democratic states, obviously, a lot of roads are going to be done for a trillion. Do you know they say if you – right now, Joe Biden's showing little interest in it. And is being pushed just to pass on simple reconciliation, $6 trillion, as Lindsey Graham said, more than we spent on all of World War II. Anybody will tell you, without an economics degree that just cares about the economy, that if you have inflation and you print more money that you don't have that goes right to the debt, we will again devalue the dollar, meaning the money you have in your pocket is worth less every day. That is not okay. Where does the math ever add up? And I'll tell you. I listen to the Sunday shows. I watch a lot of our shows. Nobody's talking about inflation. But if you want a universal truth that affects everyone, that is one of them. I mean, the amount of people not working because we're paying money out of our pockets that we don't have to pay them more not to work. It doesn't make financial sense for them to go back and get a job when you get paid $75,000 without working at all. And when this is the case, you would think they'd move off the emergency package, get towards the infrastructure package, make sure the defense is financed, and go out and try to control China and be ready for their next ransom attack because we're going to need to respond. But that's just not what's happening. The economy, as we see it right now, is front and center, and they're looking to do big things. In fact, here is Kamala Harris. Her role is to tell everybody what's already been passed, and that is that rescue plan gave something like $3,600 to everybody who made under $100,000 per kid. Per kid. Cut 12. Here's the drum roll. The American Rescue Plan will lift half of America's children out of poverty. What we know is when more families know about the relief that is included in the American Rescue Plan, when more families know about how they can get the relief, That is how we will lift up our nation's middle class as well. The increase and the expansion of the child tax credit is one of the most important, one of the most impactful parts of the American Rescue Plan. On Child Tax Credit Awareness Day, we are getting the word out about this tax relief. By the way. That's the way you do it in life. If you can't do any job well, keep, keep giving her new jobs. She's terrible at the border. 
She's supposed to be selling us on the vaccine, and now she's supposed to sell us on the tax relief. you got to, I guess, apply for it because you don't pay taxes. So if you make, I think, under $110,000 and you have three kids, you're going to get $3,600, basically per kid, per check. I'm happy for you in the short term, but what is the bigger picture that Barack Obama was able to see? Why would you ever make more than $100,000? Why not have more kids and get more money? Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. Now, from the historical audio archives of Fox News Talk. No other player in history of baseball affected how the game was played more than Babe Ruth. He changed the game from an inside game of scratching for one or two runs to a game of power. His career included 714 home runs. He retired from the game and was elected to the first class in the new Baseball Hall of Fame. With all that, the Babe still wish for more. I've had three ambitions in my life. One of them was to hit 700 home runs. The other one was to play 20 years. And the next one was to be in 10 World Series. I succeeded in one last year, making my 10th World Series. And next year gives me the opportunity to play in 20 years. And if I had 46 home runs, I'll have my 700 home runs, and I'll sure be satisfied with everything. Stay tuned to hear more history as it unfolds before your ears. It's the audio archives of Fox News Talk. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. We've got a big hour coming your way. Uh, we are uh, going to have uh, Jonathan Swan joining us, and then Dr. Marty McCarry. He's concerned about something that should concern everybody, whether it's your son, grandson, granddaughter. Uh, a lot of kids are having problems with this second shot of the virus, of the so-called vaccine, which we probably don't even need a vaccine for, uh, for these kids this age. But we're pushing it, and now people are having problems, and they're taking their time coming up with some type of remedy or or approach, or or pause. And then we'll do a Varney and Company simulcast and then take your calls in between. We've got a new number. If you have a pen handy, just for a couple of days, we're having some problems with the phones, 1-888-788-9910. So uh, I hope you're having a great day. It's going to get better, so let's get started. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Weren't the Chinese engaged in a cover-up? Well, that wasn't our task, to find out if China had covered up the origin issue. No, no, I know. I'm just saying, doesn't that make you wonder? We didn't see any evidence of any um, false reporting or cover-up in the work that we did in China. Right, and you're looking very hard. Closing in. First, Fauci feeling the heat and showing some anger. Now, Peter Donsik, a China apologist with links to the Wuhan lab, has been booted from the COVID commission for conflicts of interest. About time. Number two. As the reopening continues, shifts in demand can be large and rapid, and bottlenecks, hiring difficulties, and other constraints could continue to limit how quickly supply can adjust, raising the possibility that inflation could turn out to be higher and more persistent than we expect. So what are you doing with the worst inflation plaguing the economy? The Biden team looks to add $6 trillion in spending 
and fruitlessly is trying to sell us a radical voting reform measure that's going to fall on its face today? Here's hoping it all fails. Number one. He'd be approaching this a little differently than he did perhaps in 94 when there was another prime wave that Democrats responded to. I mean, can you talk to how his approach might change? A great deal of the crime we're seeing as a result of gun violence. Exactly. Criminals use guns. Yes, you could say it's gun violence. Uh, unbelievable. Crime crisis has has rightly caught the attention of the White House, and their approach to solving it is all wrong, as we blame the gun, not the shooter, the cop, not the criminal. Joining us now, Jonathan Swan, who thought he'd add some frequent flyer miles um, to his uh, American Airlines account. I don't know the frequent flyer number he uses, but he went over to Pakistan to speak to the uh, Pakistani president. Is that right, Jonathan Swan? Yes, I was in Islamabad um, uh, last week to talk to Prime Minister Imran Khan. Why was that important? First off, great to hear from you again. Uh, why was that important for you? Because I have some cuts and I saw the interview. I know how important it is. But why did you target him? So a few reasons. Number one, as you know, America is pulling out of Afghanistan after 20 years. Um, Biden set a deadline of September the 11th, but it's actually going quicker than that. Uh, could be out of there pretty much by uh, by August. Pakistan has been America's very complicated, some would say, uh, or many would say, thoroughly dishonest partner in the war on terror. They, America, many of the, basically America's drone campaign uh, to a large extent was conducted inside Pakistan. They have harbored Taliban, Haqqani network, terrorists. Um, and at the same time, they've also helped America kill terrorists. So it's very, very complicated. And to the extent to which uh, the United States is able to keep some presence in the region to keep an eye on terrorism in Afghanistan, Pakistan is one of the places that they're most uh, hopeful of remaining uh, in. So for that reason, it's really important. Another reason I really want to talk to him, Pakistan is kind of ground zero for China's uh, campaign of influence around the world. What China is doing, as you know, the Chinese Communist Party, is through their Belt and Road Initiative, they're pouring hundreds of billions of dollars into, in many cases, vulnerable developing countries around the world. And those that money comes with strings attached. In some cases, you know, the countries can't pay back the loans. So China says, great, we're going to take this very strategically important port and all the areas around it. It's a form of it's almost neo-colonialism. And then there's also this other string attached, which is if you take our money, you better not criticize us for, for the atrocities that we're committing against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. And that was something I wanted to ask Imran Khan about because he's made such a big deal about Islamophobia in Europe and the United States, but he won't say a word about the genocide right. of Muslims in China. I know. It was great. Let's first off take your first topic. Here you, you're asking about, because we get BS by this administration by saying, don't worry about it. Just because we're not in Afghanistan doesn't mean we don't have quick strike ability. Cut, 20, uh, cut 29. Will you allow the American government to have CIA here in Pakistan uh, to conduct cross-border counterterrorism missions against al-Qaeda, ISIS, or the Taliban? Absolutely not. There's no way we're going to allow any bases uh, 
any sort of action from Pakistani territory uh, into Afghanistan. Absolutely not. Now, could they be something where would they do station them there, but they just don't tell us that? Yes, that's certainly possible, and it's what the Biden people are hoping, that they come to a secret arrangement. But the problem is that's actually much more difficult than people realise because it's pretty hard to keep this stuff secret yeah. long term. I mean, particularly if you're running drones. And the fact is um, the Pakistani public is – like, he's reflecting his people there by saying that. When my interview went crazy in Pakistan. Like, the, the phrase absolutely not was the top phrase on all their media, front pages, Pakistani social media. So the Pakistani people do not want American CIA uh, inside their country. So – I actually think it's going to be very difficult for the U.S. to establish uh, a robust presence inside Pakistan. Jonathan, I know it's not your area to give the opinion on this, but it's one of those. It's going to be one of the most uh, foolhardy decisions made, uh, haphazard, not well thought out. President Trump wanted everybody out, gave Joe Biden the pathway to get out, saying the plan was already in the books. I just modified it and formalized it, and now after all, twenty years, we're basically handing it over to the Taliban, handing it over. And we're more worried about getting our people out uh, than we are about continuing to make sure the Afghan government uh, stays in power. We've basically given up on the whole thing. Yeah, America um, really is wiping their hands of this. And, you know, the notion that you can somehow remotely prop up the Afghan security forces is is kind of fanciful. Um, what what most people I talk to in the region expect is a very, very bloody civil war inside Afghanistan, which, as you know, Brian, creates almost laboratory-like conditions for terrorism to, uh, to rise up again. Uh, so that's what people are concerned about. Hope to God it doesn't happen, but that's certainly what everyone is expecting who, who follows this issue closely. So you went out them, and this is one thing I've said pretty consistently on the show. I don't understand the Muslim community who got upset if the Quran was not put back the right way or if it wasn't uh, if it wasn't placed the right way at Gitmo. Then we had the massive riots, remember, with Benghazi and what results after that. And we uh, have all the death and destruction at our embassies. Yet they, China, lock up tens, if not millions of Uyghurs, Muslims. They put them in concentration camps. They torture them. They sterilize them. And where's the outrage in the Muslim community? You asked that. Cut 30. Why are you so outspoken about Islamophobia in Europe and the United States, but totally silent about the genocide of Muslims in Western China? What our conversations have been with the Chinese, this is not the case, according to them. Whatever issues we have with the Chinese... We speak to them behind closed doors. China has been one of the greatest friends to us in our most difficult times. When we were really struggling, our economy was struggling, China came to our rescue. Whatever issues we have, we speak behind closed doors. So <laughs> you, you pushed them, cut 31. On some level, doesn't it make you feel sick to have to be quiet because of all this money they're putting into Pakistan? I look around the world what's happening in Palestine, Libya, Somalia, Syria, Afghanistan. Am I going to start talking about everything? I concentrate on what is happening on my border, in my country. This is on your border. Which is, no, that is part of Pakistan. 100,000 Kashmiris are dying. That concerns me more because half of Kashmir is in Pakistan. Yeah. <laughs> You're exasperated. 
Well, it's on his freaking border. I mean, you know, I focus on things on my border. I mean, Western China, Xinjiang is literally on his border. So, I mean, it's just this... Uh, anyway, as you can tell, he's dissembling. Now, at least he was honest. He, he basically said, they're giving us a lot of money. They've been very good to us when we were down. And so we won't talk about this stuff publicly. So in that sense, I, I, I applaud him because he actually said what everyone knows to be true. Um, and there are many Muslims. I'm seeing a lot of in Pakistan who are outraged by this. Um, you know, I'm seeing a lot of uh, reaction to this on, on social media in particular. Uh, and, and the fact is he has, got, he, he has got himself into a situation with China where they are so dependent on, on the Chinese government's generosity with loans and investments that they can't, they have to ignore not just a small, we're not talking about, um, Brian, we're not talking about the Chinese government saying mean things about Uyghurs. We're talking about the imprisonment, yes. just to be clear, the imprisonment of more than one million Muslim Uyghurs in re-education camps, forced sterilizations, torture, uh, banning, punishing them for praying. I mean, this is one of the great large-scale human rights atrocities in the post-Holocaust era. So we're not talking about just another little run-of-the-mill uh, episode of Islamophobia. This is something on a really chilling scale. No kidding. I have to have something else. A great interview, great topic, and it matters so much. And by the way, Jonathan, we're going to be at a place when the Taliban take back Afghanistan, if this continues, everyone's going to be outraged. They can't believe it. Wow, how are we responsible? How can we fight that 20 years and uh, let 3,000 people die there, uh, tens of thousands wounded, and just let it go like that? We're, we're telling everyone what's going to happen. They could still adjust it. The Pentagon could still stand up and speak out. I've talked to two or three people at the Pentagon. They're outraged about what's happening. They're worried about getting their people that helped us for years out along with their families. But lastly, there's a big story about Donald Trump in books, that he's cooperated with Maggie Haberman. He's cooperated with Jonathan Carl. He's cooperated with uh, Molly Hemingway, uh, hasn't cooperated with Bob Woodward. Uh, at Mar-a-Lago and now over in Jersey at his club in Bedminster. Are you surprised? No, because he likes, <laughs> he likes to, you know, he likes to play, right? He, he always likes to get involved. He likes, the, um, he likes to try to shape, even though uh, I think he fully understands that these are not going to be in many ways flattering um, books. Um, he, he likes the engagement. He likes the the conflict. He likes to be in, in the mix. And so it doesn't surprise me at all. And there's many more that I understand that he's cooperated with. I think it's more than a dozen, actually. So, um, yeah, I mean, I talked to him a few weeks ago, and I think, you know, if I was doing a book, he'd quite happily... I mean, I, I think it's basically all comers, and the, the only exception is uh, Bob Woodward, and, you know, for obvious reasons. Yeah, I mean, Maggie, I mean I, the Maggie Haberman thing befuddles me. Because she is not, uh, I don't think she's been fair to him at all. And I think she uh, abuses her access. And I, I cannot, I mean, they must have some type of secret bond that I don't know about. Because for him to even take her call, let alone cooperate with a book, astounds me. Uh, you and I are not going to agree on that one. I think she's awesome. So, uh, and I mean that. I wouldn't, I'm not... Not putting, you know, putting uh, putting anything over you. I think she's like one of the great reporters. What about so, the uh, thing that she will not uh, pull off Trump, and that they're telling her to talk to uh, cover the next president? She just won't. 
No, that's not. I mean, they're not telling. I mean, she has basically free reign, and she, look, she's doing a book on Trump. So I, I think that's been a little bit distorted. I mean, she's she's doing she's covering the post presidency, and she's doing a book on him. So she really hasn't been put onto the Biden bees. Um, I expect that after you know when she's done her book, that she'll probably move on to Biden. What's your sense about what Trump's going to do next? I don't know. Brian, I'd be curious on your opinion on this. I, I talked to people who were spending time with him at Mar-a-Lago. Um, they seem to think that there's maybe a 50-50 chance he runs again. He's obviously highly engaged. I mean, he's doing these calls with his, and meetings with his political team. He's very much focused on midterms, who does he endorse, who doesn't he endorse, you know, you know still very angry with Mitch McConnell, um, you know, has a very... I would say, up-and-down relationship with Kevin McCarthy. And I think they're sort of seeing how it all works out. And then there's this... Um, they're still playing with this idea of a social network. Uh, he's obviously been banned from Twitter and Facebook. It doesn't look like he's going to be let on anytime soon. So there's a lot of balls in the air. Uh, but I don't know... Um, I, I couldn't say one way or the other whether he runs or not. I don't think probably he's fully made up that his mind on that yet. Very curious. I guess it happens. It was all about the investigation. If he beats the investigation, if the indictments don't come down, I would think that he would run. But if there's any type of distraction there and he's holding on to his business and his reputation, I can't I don't see how he could possibly even let it run, let alone win. Um, But Jonathan, look, great work. Uh, Watch uh, Axios on HBO, right? That's it, mate. You got it. Uh, Great job, Jonathan. Uh, When we come back, we'll take your calls. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America is listening to Fox News. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. We vigorously object to the worldview and the outlook that Raisi has put forward. We don't share his values. We don't share his interests. But, Chris, we also have to keep our eye on the ball. The person who will call the shots on Iran's nuclear program is not Raisi. It's the supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, which you heard earlier from Lindsey Graham. He's the guy, ultimately, who will make the decision about whether Iran... Uh, accepts the constraints on its nuclear program that will ensure that it does not get a nuclear weapon. That's what we are testing right now. That's what our diplomacy is all about. And we are determined to prevent Iran from ever acquiring a nuclear weapon. So I got some bad news for you. Uh, This new president's not buying that. He said Monday he would not meet with Joe Biden nor negotiate over Tehran's ballistic missile program, which is a huge mistake not to include it uh, in it again because you could put a nuclear warhead on it, and in support of regional militias, which is Hezbollah, Hamas, Islamic Jihad. Uh, That's where where their butter is bred. That's what angers the people so much. The people have so little social services, but Hezbollah and Hamas get to fight Iran, excuse me, uh, Israel, 24 hours a day. Uh, the Judiciary Chief, uh, Ibram Raisi, also described uh, himself as a defender of human rights. When asked about his involvement in the 1988 mass execution of 5,000 people, quote, it marked the first time he's put on the spot in the live television uh, and the only dark moment in Iranian history at the end of the Iran-Iraq war. He uh, balked when he was put on the spot. 
U.S. officials have communicated to Iran that Biden will not lift every single sanction imposed by Trump because some of them appear to have legitimate basis, but they also indicate that some Trump-era sanctions appeared aimed at making it harder to return to the nuclear deal, not punishing Iran for terrorism or other non-nuclear reasons. So they are at an impasse. My sense is this president will cut a deal, tell give Rawaini, the outgoing president, permission to cut a deal. Then he'll act like a tough guy and say, you know, the previous administration did that. And if it works out, it's because he presided over it. That's my hunch. What's yours? When we come back, we're going to be joined by Dr. Marty McCarry. Are your kids being put in danger by the vaccine? New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. WHO is now saying that kids under the age of 18, young people, should not take the coronavirus vaccine because the risks outweigh the benefits. What are some of those risks? Well, researchers in Israel have found that the COVID vaccine could increase the risk of of potentially fatal heart inflammation in young people by as much as 25 times. And it's also clear that people who've been infected with the coronavirus and recovered do not need to take the vaccine in many cases because their antibody levels will protect them naturally. And yet, despite the mounting evidence that there could in fact be profoundly negative consequences to forcing students to take the vaccine, colleges are doing it across the country. That is true. Uh, the two colleges my kids are going to, they have to before they go back to school. Is it right? Dr. Marty McCarry joins us now, Fox News contributor, surgeon and professor, uh, professor of health science at health policy at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health and author of this great book, The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare. Dr. McCurry, are you concerned about what Tucker was just speaking about? Yes. Uh, hey, Brian. So, look, I think the colleges and universities are going to hurt a lot of kids out there because a lot of kids should not be getting their second dose. You know, the second dose normally knocks people down for a day. Sometimes they have fevers. And they're sort of sick, although it's transient, just from that inflammatory and immune response to the vaccine. Well, in kids, that response is even greater. It's a stronger response. And it's overwhelming the heart of the, these poor kids that are sustaining these heart complications. And that's why the WHO and so many countries have said, hold off on vaccinating kids under 18. My personal opinion, you can get one dose without those complications but our old guard medical establishment seems to dismiss it. So you said there's no rush to find out. You know, Israel comes up with, a, with uh, some problems. They were ahead of us on the vaccine distribution, smaller country. Got it. And we don't seem alarmed. There's no emergency, no sense of urgency. Yet with Johnson & Johnson, there was a huge sense of urgency. What, what's the difference? <laughs> That's right. They had a big pause because they thought that maybe, you know, seven people, which, by the way, Per injection, more, there's more concerning deaths among kids under 18. We've got two cases now of kids who died uh, from heart complications immediately after the second dose with no other explanation. And as a doctor, you've got to assume that's a correlation until proven otherwise. And we know that this second dose causes heart inflammation. So why did the CDC, after they got hundreds of these cases, say, 
We're going to hold an emergency meeting. We're going to do it in nine days. And then the night before that meeting, the federal government declares that day a federal holiday, Juneteenth. And then the CDC says, okay, we're going to meet a week later. I mean, this is the, you're getting a glimpse into our giant bureaucracy, which is a failed CDC. So parents listening right now, what choices do they have? Well, look, first of all, if they've had the infection, you don't need to do anything. That goes for adults or kids because natural immunity is is effective. Now, you can get a dose, but you don't need to. Um, So, look, one of the greatest failures of our medical leadership has been ignoring natural immunity. Keep that in mind. If If you don't have natural immunity, you haven't had the infection, I recommend one dose if somebody's under 30 for now. Remember, you can space out that second dose months down the road. It's fine. It's actually better in terms of long-term durability. Yeah, but the, the big thing is you're dealing with college. You want to see proof of vaccinations who aren't healthcare professionals like you. That's why, I guess, at Indiana University, uh, one student has retained a lawyer, this guy Jim Bopp. He was on with Tucker last night. He is an attorney representing an Indiana University student who doesn't want to get the vaccine but yet wants to stay at the school. Cut 27. Most uh, governments now are lifting uh, restrictions and limitations, and then Indiana University suddenly, kind of out of the blue, uh, requires one of the most severe uh, and rights-violated requirements, which is every student needs to be vaccinated. We filed the case. We've asked for expedition. We are seeking a preliminary injunction uh, to enjoin this mandate uh, from taking effect and uh, adversely affecting uh, Indiana University students. Uh, We're not ceding uh, the authority that students have or that uh, adults have uh, to experts and the and the government. So that's the lawsuit. Well, I guess every all eyes are going to be on this, right? Yeah. And, you know, I've been meaning to reach out to him, Brian, since I saw that last night on Tucker. I'm more than happy to testify on their behalf. It is anti-science to require somebody who already had the vaccine to get it and to require somebody who has one dose to get a second dose when they don't want to. By the way, the Israeli study just came out, showed that one dose was 100% effective in kids. So we've got a strategy that appears to be um, plausible, get one dose if you haven't had the infection. And these colleges and universities are forcing the second dose. It's not, this is not a joke. We've got cases of kids now dead. Kids are dying. And you've got to assume it's from that second dose until proven otherwise. Kids don't just normally die. It's not like adults and the J&J clotting uh, incident where you, you don't know if that's just the normal rate of clots. Kids just don't die, and they don't die days from a second dose. Right. I just don't understand why this isn't a bigger deal. I, I don't understand why uh, this isn't uh, roaring headlines that just leaves politics out of it and affects I mean, grandparents listening to me right now, parents listening to me right now, 18-year-olds driving back from their last day of school listening right now, and this affects them directly. Yeah, if you know anybody at a college or university on the board, a president, and you're out there listening, please urge them to get rid of these mandates that are going to hurt a lot of kids. If we force a lot of kids to get the second dose, we're going to see a lot more heart inflammation, pericarditis, myocarditis, than we should. These are self-inflicted wounds, okay? There's no pandemic among kids. Kids are very low transmitters, very low risk of incidents. And if, you're, if you have a comorbidity, there's risk. If you don't, 
the risk is basically infinitesimally small or zero. A couple of things on the big front. Uh, Anthony Fauci, who I know we've been frustrated with, you as a professional, me as a as a pedestrian, about his policies, contradictory statements, never acknowledging when he was wrong. He is getting the criticism beginning to get to him, in my opinion. Listen to what he was saying on this on the New York Times podcast, Cut 25. I put very little weight in the adulation and very little weight in the craziness of condemning me. Things change. So it isn't a question of being wrong. It's a question of going with the data as you have and being humble enough and flexible enough to change with the data. So is are we just being are we being too hard on him? He's, the guy has got to give it to him. He's a communications and public relations genius. I mean, that's just masterful the way he he talks around that and parses his words. You know what, Brian? As a doctor, I can tell you, patients appreciate it when I apologize if something goes wrong. When I give tell people, look, we should have done this and we didn't. We should have started this particular chemo regimen. We, we chose to do the other one because we thought it was better. Turns out your body didn't handle it well. I'm sorry. People are hungry for honesty right now. And if you ever hear him apologize for anything, please call me and let me know. I've never once heard that level of humility. And I think people have a right to be frustrated right now. I mean, it's not just the mask. It's him telling it's not going to be a problem, telling us to watch, watch down all of our things, telling uh, 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 criticizing Texas for opening up, never going and studying Texas when the numbers went down after they opened up, looking at Florida being critical, not seeing what worked in Florida, admitting that going outside was really almost no chance of transmitting the virus with or without the vaccine. But yet you kept us inside for months, never admitted that you were wrong, just say we have a change in policy. And then he says it's up to us if we this is the best one. And and I mean that sarcastically. If you criticize him, this is what you're criticizing. Cut 26. It is essential as a scientist that you evolve your opinion and your recommendations based on the data as it evolves. And that's the reason why I say people who then criticize me about that are actually criticizing science. Okay, you are in science. How dare you? It's like if you don't like, and this is the analogy I've always used, if you don't like my show, you just don't like talk radio. You just don't like the radio, <laughs> right? It can't be me. Well, look, I'm sure his philosophy is true in, in North Korea and in other totalitarian systems, but we're supposed to have an open dialogue. And I'm sure there are a couple anti-science people out there that are kicking it out on Fauci, but that's not most of us. Most of us nope. just formally disagree with his data-driven approach. It's not a matter of evolving. I mean, look at the masterful use of language here. It's bad hypotheses, okay? He's had a series of bad hypotheses, and it's not just that he got things wrong. He's still very wrong. The entire world right now, Brian, is looking to Dr. Fauci and Dr. Walensky for guidance as they're dealing with massive surges in Africa and they are holding to things that they got wrong in the U.S., like focusing on two doses within two or three or four weeks instead of maximizing first doses, ignoring natural immunity in the population, which changes how you ration the limited vaccine supply. And in Uganda, they just went into strict lockdown stay-at-home orders. In an, in an open-air society like oh, Uganda, we're putting people in their homes. It is, it's not just past mistakes with Dr. Fauci. 
he's still making them. Got it. Dr. McCarry, great. You helped out a lot of people today. The Price We Pay is the name of his book. Dr. McCarry, thank you. Back in a moment, we'll simulcast on Fox Business. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Now, the Brian Kilmeade Show joins Fox Business's Varney and Company with Stuart Varney, live on your radio and on Fox Business. Here's Brian Kilmeade. Yeah, I always love hopping on with Stuart. It's always fun. Uh, we're going to be talking about the primary in New York today. And the thing is kind of unique is that I can't do the math, but if you don't, you know, you pick your top candidate and then you pick your second uh, favorite candidate and they're going to be weighted. So it's going to be a weighted primary. It looks like Eric Adams, the former cop, who a lot of cops don't like, but he's the closest thing to law and order on the ballot on the Democratic side. Still hope uh, Curtis Slito finds a way to win on the Republican side and maybe shocks everybody. But let's listen in to Stuart Varney. Voting's underway for the New York mayoral primary. The main issue is crime. I just want you to watch this. An MSNBC contributor blaming the rise in crime on the police. You've got to watch this, Brian. Roll it, please. I think that there are a lot of police unions and GOP operatives that would like for us to believe that this recent crime wave has everything to do with this idea of defunding the police. So this rising crime is not the fault of the movement. It's actually the fault of the police. Interesting that the MSNBC anchor there was nodding along sagely, uh, sagely as if she agrees with her. What do you make of this, Brian? Well, I mean, no rational human being would agree with her. She's so caught up in politics. She doesn't understand there's no Democrat or Republican when you're carjacked. Uh, when you're caught in the crossfire between uh, two gangsters, no one says, well, if the bullet hits me, I must be a Republican or Democrat. No, there's crime. And there's crime bleeding into the suburbs. There's crime all over the cities. And as the American people go back to work in the city and go back before they go back home, they got to look around and say, what happened? What's with the homeless encampments? Why is anyone pushing them away? Where are the police officers? Why have they not been empowered? Why are the people that are getting arrested out the same day? Why aren't people getting arrested? Because they're getting out the same day. And this is not just a New York story. It's Chicago, Philadelphia. It is a Los Angeles story. It is almost, it's an Austin, Texas story. And this is not because of George Floyd. It's because of what happened after George Floyd's death on the hands of Derek Chauvin. And what's happened is they blame every cop. And guess what happened? This is my analogy. I hope you buy into it, Stuart. Can you imagine if you break up with someone and then you realize you made this huge mistake and for a year you got to watch that someone have the greatest life ever without you? So the cops were told they were the villains. They're the bad guys. They're the problem. So they backed off. They quit. They handed in their badge. They didn't have academies. They couldn't fill up the academies. And they're looking around, and they're watching all hell break loose. And they're not saying, I told you so, because they don't have to, because we know they knew it was going to happen. You know that 99.9% are great people doing extraordinary things, getting paid not nearly what they're worth on a daily basis. But now you made them the enemy and the problem, and now you want them to do go above and beyond? Forget it. Good luck in Minneapolis. The only thing that's growing in Minneapolis are the pup tents on the fields where kids used to play in. So this is a joke. Okay. Portland, Oregon, trying to repair their image after all this violent crime and violent riots. They've got a tourism ad. They're trying to bring tourists back. Watch this. This is Portland, but so is this. And this. We're not perfect, but we're the kind of place where you don't have to be anyone but yourself. And yeah, 
we have some of the loudest voices on the West Coast. All right, Brian, what's your judgment? You think that's really going to draw people back to Portland? You know, I was just looking, uh, I'm looking online right now at the travel site. So many people have given up their trip to Aruba and they're thinking Portland. Uh, this summer, is just, yeah, sure enough, <laughs> almost all of them are leaving. Their, they're leaving Aruba, they're leaving uh, Atlantis as well. I don't think anybody's going to Florida and I don't think you're going to go to the Gulf Coast at all. Now I believe Portland will be great. Bring your own riot shield and try to walk and get a, and get a tuna sandwich. It'll be fantastic. What is, what is crime up? 800, literally 800 percent. And you can get somebody who pretends to be a 17 year old to do voiceover on a bad ad and think you're going to change things around. Law and order might be a start. Maybe if I can keep my business open without plywood. The only thing that is actually selling well is plywood for all the people who want to uh, temporarily close their business or decide if they want to permanently close their business. It is an embarrassment to this country, Seattle and Portland, and the only thing that's thriving there is Antifa, which is not a magnet for tourists, I don't believe. I think we know where you're coming from, Brian Kilmeade, and we thank you very much for being on the show again today. We'll see you real soon. Thanks, again, Brian. Stuart, you're welcome. Top All right. Uh, normally, I'd give out the phone number. We're having some problems with the phone right now, but you still have me, and that's important. Uh, I have a, a couple of minutes left. A couple other things that's going to be happening today. Where there's going to be an election in New York, and I don't like to focus on any one city. We are located in New York City. It is the number one city in the world. A lot of times it sets the tone for the rest of the planet, let alone our country. And what you're seeing here is you saw a major crackdown of the 80s and a lot of benefits from three terms of uh, law and order under Bloomberg. He did some things wrong, but the bottom line is he was very organized. He had a mission. He knows how to execute. You don't become a billionaire by mistake, especially when you do it your own business and a self-made multimillionaire. And then when Mayor de Blasio took over, he was able to hold on to the steering wheel. And then when his policies began to take root, when he started pulling his hands off uh, the quality education, when he stopped giving gifted students a chance to excel, when he told cops you better stop the stop and frisk, when he told the academies you better get rid of the anti-crime unit and the homeless unit, then everything began to fall apart. And suddenly, while everyone was running and no one was endorsing de Blasio, nobody was endorsing the cops, in the end, Eric Adams, the former cop, who Ray Kelly, who the, maybe uh, the finest police chief we've ever had in New York in it, or anywhere, also did a great job in Haiti and served in the Marines. When Ray Kelly took over, he doesn't really like Eric Adams. He goes, you know, he might be the best hope. But then maybe something happened. When Eric Adams saw those children caught in the crossfire a couple of days ago, he put his own money up. And I know he's campaigning to find the perpetrators. And then when you had one of his most dedicated volunteers get stabbed and get caught on camera, and that video is now out today, my hope is that Eric Adams understands that the things that you, the thing that you used to do and put your uniform on and keep, this, uh, keep the city streets safe can keep politics away from the cops. Make them accountable. They've always been accountable. Always. But empower them, build them up, and that'll help when they drive down to the street. They get a lot bit more respect because they know you'll be backing up. And also, make a call, 1-800-CUOMO, reverse this bail reform. No cash bail might have been unequal, but it's better than what we got right now, which means no one gets arrested, no one stays in jail, which means nobody's safe. Hey, go to BrianKilmeadeShow.com, order the podcast anytime, anywhere. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. 
from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. This hour, we're going to be joined uh, by Peter Spiliakis, and he's a columnist with the National Review. The reason why I thought it would be so cool to have him on, you know, I've always been fascinated with late-night television and who broke it. Well, I saw the breaking of Stephen Colbert, and it's so true. Even though he's number one in late night, he's not funny. He's All he is is political. All he seems to be is anti-Trump, anti-Republican. Since when? Go back to Steve Allen. You go back to Jack Parr. You go back to Johnny Carson. You go back to Jay Leno. And Letterman, until recently, used to just be a funny guy, equal opportunity offender, and then in his later years became a wild lefty. But he was never, you know, he, that that's why he was third. Jay Leno was splitting the difference. He's number one, but with a very small audience compared to past late night shows. He wrote the column on it. I was curious to see the genesis of it and what the reaction's been. He's going to be joining us. And Michael Goodwin standing by. Today is voting day for the Democratic nominee to be the next mayor, overwhelmingly favored to be the next mayor. Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor, will unwind this whole you know, one, two, three thing where you pick your first place and you pick your second choice and your third choice. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Weren't the Chinese engaged in a cover-up? Well, that wasn't our task, to find out if China had covered up the origin of No, no, I know. I'm just saying, doesn't that make you wonder? We didn't see any evidence of any um, false reporting or cover-up in the work that we did in China. Peter Dasik on 60 Minutes. His voice, his words were not credible. His ties with, to uh, Wuhan were very strong. His lies are leaking out, and it's closing in. First Fauci feeling the heat and showing some anger, and now Peter Dadzik, get this, a China apologist with link to the Wuhan lab has been booted from the COVID commission for conflicts of interest. Number two. As the reopening continues, shifts in demand can be large and rapid, and bottlenecks, hiring difficulties, and other constraints could continue to limit how quickly supply can adjust, raising the possibility that inflation could turn out to be higher and more persistent than we expect. Yeah, that's a robot, Jerome Powell. Yeah, higher, because you want to spin it towards Biden, but it's true. Think about everything you're buying from meat to uh, to coolers. What are you doing? With the worst inflation plaguing the country in recent memory, the Biden team is looking to add, hold on to something tight, $6 trillion in spending, and is fruitlessly trying to sell us on radical voting reform, which is going to get voted down maybe within the next two hours. Here's hoping it all fails. Number one. He'd be approaching this a little differently than he did perhaps in 94 when there was another prime wave that Democrats responded to. Can you talk to how his approach might change? A great deal of the crime we're seeing as a result of gun violence. <laughs> Jen Psaki, crime crisis, has rightly caught attention of the White House, but their approach to solving it is all wrong. They blame the gun, not the shooter. They blame the cops, not the criminal. Joining us now, Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor. Uh, Eric Adams uh, is was named by Michael Goodwin as the best shot to restore order in New York City. So did the New York Post overall. Michael are you comfortable with Eric Adams, or is he the best of the lot that you can see? <laughs> Good morning, Brian. I think it's more the latter. Uh, there's a lot about Eric Adams' history that uh, is contradictory to the positions he's taken in the campaign, uh, particularly on policing. He was a police officer for 22 years. He became a captain. 
but he was not so much an active police officer as he was some somewhat of a clubhouse lawyer against the department in many ways. And many cops who served with him write to me continually saying, this is not the guy, he's not the guy he's pretending to be now. And I appreciate those comments, and at the same time, I believe that uh, you have to take these candidates on the, verse, on, on the basis of what they are doing now, what they are promising to. Uh, there are no perfect people out there, no perfect candidates, certainly none in this field. And I think that Eric Adams is the best of the bunch in the sense that it, I, you know, New York now, Brian, has this ranked choice voting. And so you can pick up the five candidates. And what I did to simplify that, because there are eight Democrats, I am a registered Democrat, though I vote like an independent in general elections, uh, I simplified it by saying, what issues do I care about most? And then lining up the candidates that match that. So for me, of course, crime and public disorder are the first issue, and Eric Adams is the best on that, by far. I think there's not even a close second. My second best, most important issue is education, including school choice. And I think uh, I've already voted for Eric Adams. I did vote this morning. And Andrew Yang is the second best on education, and or maybe the first best on education, so he is my second choice. And can I stop you one quick thing? He wants, the, you know, the New Yorkers and maybe maybe the parents listening right now around the country want charter schools. And, yes. and, and, and uh, de Blasio has gone out of his way to hurt charter schools because he's in bed with the unions. Does anybody care about what's good for the people there? That have they, I have not tracked this as close as you. Has anyone said charter schools have to be out there and financed? Well, here's the thing. Uh, yes, I mean, uh, there is a cap. The New York State Legislature placed a cap on the number of charters in New York City, and New York City has hit that cap. So one of the big issues, one of the big distinctions among the candidates is, do you support raising the cap, lifting the limits? And there are three candidates who have said yes, uh, Eric Adams, uh, Andrew Yang, and Catherine Garcia. I have other problems with Garcia. But Adams and Yang on both policing and charter schools, and not just charter schools, but excellence in education, allowing for real merit, not just treating everybody on the basis of their skin color. Those are the two best candidates. And finally, I put Ray McGuire, the former Citibank executive, as my third candidate because I think he's common sense. He has a respect for facts. But he did not run a great campaign. There are no clear issues. But I think he would not be – I think he's the best of the rest. Right. Uh, okay. So in ranked choice voting, you just get less points the further down the line. So your third, point, your third choice would get less points, right? Well, the way it works is they eliminate from the bottom. The person who has the least first-choice votes gets eliminated, and that person's supporters get distributed according to how they rank their other candidates. So let's say Ray McGuire uh, has the lowest number one uh, choices among all the candidates, just for example. Then people who, who on, on their supporters, his supporters, how they rank their second, third, and fourth choices, their second choice would now get their vote. That second choice would become 
in effect, a number one choice for the new candidate. And so you go that way. It's a process of elimination until there are two candidates left, and the first one to have a majority wins. Uh, it's not a bad system. It's an interesting system. Uh, I think it encourages more candidates. The problem is the process by which the debates include too many candidates. Uh, there's, there's an awful lot of wasted public money in this campaign matching system that New York has now. So there are problems with it. But uh, the voting was fine this morning. Uh, I, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy voting. I go there. The people are generally very happy and helpful. There were no lines, which could mean low turnout. But uh, we all have to vote. We have to vote, even if we don't love any candidate. We have to pick the best candidate we can find and support that candidate. So, uh, okay, the other thing, that's what's happening locally, but it affects the country. Now let's talk about what's happening in Washington today. uh, This week they're going to talk about any type of compromise on infrastructure. So if they do a compromise on $1 trillion infrastructure, evidently there's lukewarm interest in compromising a bill, even though literally there is Dick Durbin. Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema, uh, Portman, uh, Romney, all the so-called moderates are on board, and maybe con- big conservatives like Lindsey Graham are on board on a trillion dollars, all right? They might not accept that. If they do accept it, it's only on the premise that they're going to go on f- uh, on pure reconciliation, put $6 trillion into our debt pool, and go past something else called human infrastructure. Elder care, preschool, school lunches, uh, infrastructure when it comes to green energy. If you're a Republican, why would you sign on uh, to the $1 trillion if you know $6 trillion is going to hit you in the back of the head? Well, I think you can separate them, as I think some of these Republicans have, and said, look, we need the physical infrastructure. We support that. That that bill has been, you know, trimmed down to focus on physical infrastructure, the real meaning of infrastructure. And then we will vote against the other one, because the Democrats are going to do the other one, no matter what, on reconciliation. I don't think that the Republicans agreeing to part one is going to have any real impact on part two, because the Democrats think they can do it with 50 votes, with Kamala Harris breaking a tie. Now, the question will be for Democrats, can they keep all 50 senators in line for that? And I think there are some doubts about that. But I think it's important for the Republicans to be for something. Uh, I I think that uh, politically uh, the country does need some level of bipartisanship in those areas where agreement is possible. But But $6 trillion is more than we spent on World War II, Michael. We can't afford it. No, I agree with that. $6 trillion, forget it. Forget the $6 trillion. I mean, I think it's crazy. And, I, you know, what I was going to say is, remember when Joe Biden used to campaign as a moderate or as a bipartisan? I mean, I think it's important for his presidency that he finds common ground with Republicans on something. Uh, and I think infrastructure. Look, you have to remember, too, Brian, the Democrats would never give Donald Trump an infrastructure bill. They would never vote on anything. And there was no way to do it through reconciliation. And so the Democrats are now demanding Republicans do what they themselves would not do under Donald Trump. I mean, they were resist, resist, resist every step of the way. They never gave Trump any votes on anything. And he was up to two trillion and he was up to two trillion and they wouldn't take it. 
Amazing. Uh, I want to get yeah. you on voting reform, too. This ridiculous uh, for, the people, we, uh, for the People Act, which would nationalize elections, forget about redrawing districts, uh, make ballot harvesting commonplace. Everyone, if you're born, you get a ballot. Uh, no voter ID. I mean, no one would sign on to this with, who was sober and cared about the country. So uh, Stacey Abrams was leading this charge when, when they started reining in and having restrictions uh, because there was post-pandemic loosening of those restrictions in Georgia and Texas and Arizona. Uh, Stacey Abrams called it uh, Jim Crow 2.0. Now, when Joe Manchin came out with recommended reforms to get him involved with the For the People Act, that included you better have voter ID and there could be a national holiday just 15 days of early voting and had some amends to it. Listen to how Stacey Abrams changes her tune. Cut 15. Redux of a failed system that is designed to both scare people out of voting and make it harder for those who are willing to push through, make it harder for them to vote. Just give me a list of the provisions that you objected. It shortens the federal runoff period from nine weeks to four weeks. Okay. It restricts the time a voter can request and return an absentee ballot application. Right. It requires that a voter have a photo identification or some other form of identification that they're willing to surrender in order to participate in absentee ballot um, process. That's one of the fallacies of Republican talking points that have been deeply disturbing. No one has ever objected to having to prove who you are to vote. It's been part of our nation's history since the inception of voting. So, I mean, that's just an example. And she goes down, she contradicts everything by signing on with Joe Manchin on this. Yeah, it's hard to figure. I, the only thing I can imagine, Brian, is that the Democrats, Stacey Abrams included, have somewhere along the line come to their senses, or just by reading the polls, they find that there is widespread support for ID uh, requirements. And look, I mean, it's common sense. If I'm if I'm eligible to vote, I don't want somebody who's ineligible to vote to also vote and therefore possibly cancel yeah. my vote. I mean, that the Democrats have failed to recognize this I know. and have made the assumption that anybody who votes, whether they're legal or not, is good for us. I mean, that's kind of crazy. And I think what it does, even, in, even for many black voters, they're saying that's crazy. Voting is a privilege. It, it, you know, it, in, in the world at large, it's a right for Americans, but like all rights, it's not absolute. It's based on certain criteria. I mean, the idea that criteria are a matter of restrictions is just so ingrained in the far left. It makes no sense. It, it's saying as though everybody is bo- everybody is eligible to vote, and any restriction that tries to weed out the ineligible is somehow restrictive and discriminatory right. and oppressive. It's and- a joke. But yeah. by the way, just to back up, just so to help you, if you have to have to go to the voting booth and talk to other New Yorkers, uh, do you? Su- this is the question asked by Monmouth University. Do you support or oppose requiring voters to show a photo ID? 80% support. Do you think a person, in-person early voting should be made easier or harder? 71% said easier. So make it easier to vote in person. Great. Do you think voting by mail should be easier? Only 50 to 40% said make it easier by mail. So most people want some type of accountability because they want their vote to count. They're not, it doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican. Michael, we can go on for three hours, but let's <laughs> see, what, see what mayor we're going to get out of this. might even be Curtis Sliwer if the Republicans nominate That's him. That's true. And 
a general election, it could happen. All right. Uh, thanks, Michael Goodwin, New York Post. Who endorses Eric Adams personally, and the paper does uh, as a paper. Back in a moment. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The economy gets back up and running, we need to make sure that the unemployment insurance system does what it's designed to do, which is supports people during periods of unemployment so they can find that new job and find that right fit. And so far, um, we have not seen strong evidence that this is um, having a significant effect, um, you know, pulling people out of the labor force. People know that it's temporary. Are you kidding me? Can Do you know anybody in business, owns a restaurant, works in a restaurant, or as a department store, or, or, or tries to get a mechanic, uh, tries to hire anybody but a college kid that can has a voter pool, or excuse me, a worker pool to choose from? But that is Heather Bushy. She is the White House Council of Economic Advisors, and she says the data she sees says the unemployment insurance plus the $300 is not hurting the workforce. There are 9 million open jobs right now in a America, open restaurants, open up three days a week because they can't get a waiter or a bartender or a cook. You're paying $50,000 in one fast food place for a 19-year-old manager, manager, college kid, because you can't get anywhere else. How can you possibly have credibility if you talk about the economy? Now, I know you have to cheer. And I know in times of a recession, I see some glimmers of hope. I get that. Larry Kudlow did that all the time. But Larry Kudlow would never say something was blatantly untrue, like the supplemental insurance that 24 separate states have looked at their data, not politics, their data, said, I can't get people back to work. My businesses that can finally, we beat the pandemic, the vaccinations are effective. I can finally let them fill up their bar, fill up their restaurant, take the plexiglass down, and I can't get people to go in and staff it so it stays closed. means the economic base is not uh, not, uh, flourishing, which means... Less tax dollars for everything else, for mowing the lawn to keeping the parks up. So they're seeing that and they go, uh, excuse me, federal government, take your money back. 24 states. But her data doesn't say it. Of course it says it. You just want to leave that in place until September. But if you truly had the American people's interest in mind, if you cared about the the, the macro economy, you'd put it back and let our country stand up. Stand up and get back to work before the summer rather than after the summer. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Working in television is a great privilege, and I do it because I love it, not to win some fancy award, is what I would have said yesterday. But today I'm all about that bling because The Late Show with Stephen Colbert just won a 2021 Peabody Award. Uh, And that was yesterday. That was last night. That was before we uh, booked Peter Spiliakis, and he was kind enough to come on, a columnist with the National Review who wrote this very, I, I thought, this uh, earth-shattering column called The Breaking of Stephen Colbert. You know, obviously, uh, late, night is, late night television has changed so much, I feel like I'm just watching a, another political show. And you don't really get much laughing. You hear clapping and support, 
as anti-Trump rhetoric goes forward and everything Joe Biden does is great. Peter Spiliakis noticed that. He wrote this column called The Breaking of Stephen Colbert, and he wrote it right after Jon Stewart's appearance. Peter, welcome. How you doing, Brian? So first off, watching Jon Stewart uh, do what he did about the leak, the origin of the coronavirus, I watched it. I watched. I always watch the replay, uh, the late night shows in the morning as I get up and get ready for work. Here's a little of Jon Stewart, and I wanted you to tell me what about this appearance made you write the column. Cut 33. There's, there's a chance that this was created in a lab. There's an investigation. A chance? Well, but I'm, I, so, I, 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 oh my if God. there's evidence, I'd love to hear it. There's I don't a know. novel respiratory coronavirus overtaking Wuhan, China. What do we do? Oh, you know who we could ask? The Wuhan novel respiratory coronavirus lab. The disease is the same name as the lab. How did this happen? And they're like, mm, a pangolin kissed a turtle. <laughs> the only coronavirus we have is in Wuhan. Yes. Where they have a lab called, what's the lab called again, Stephen? The Wuhan I, Novel Coronavirus Lab. I believe that's uh-huh. the case. And now, how long have you worked for Senator Ron Johnson? Let me tell you something. So what about a little bit of that exchange made you write the column? Well, one thing that struck me is that the relationship between Colbert and Stewart, because Stewart changed mainstream network comedy in an important way. Uh, Before Stewart and The Daily Show, mainstream network comedy basically joked about whatever was happening. They would tell jokes about Republican presidents. They would tell jokes about Democratic presidents. Stewart with The Daily Show, he's a basically liberal guy. So his Daily Show, which got a, a lot of play, it mostly came from a liberal perspective. It mostly made fun of Republicans or, and Fox. Uh, or conservatives. But at the same time, Colbert, well, pardon me, Stewart was a liberal guy, but if he saw his own side screwing up or he's, if he saw something that was absurd, he would make a joke about it. But over time, mainstream comedy has evolved, especially when it comes to public affairs, from becoming liberal to becoming party line. Whereas Jon Stewart's a liberal comedian, but if he sees something that's absurd or silly, he's going to make fun of it. He's going to make jokes about it. Whereas uh, Stephen Colbert has been working in a world that's much more conformist and much more partisan. And in that world, among elite liberals, volunteering that the lab leak actually was something that's possible or important is something that's not really supposed to be done. It's it's instead of it being liberal versus conservative, it's in group versus out group. It's us versus them. And for a certain segment of Colbert's audience, volunteering or making jokes about the lab leak as if it should have happened, as, as if it might have happened, is helping them. It's helping Trump. It's helping Senator Tom Cotton. And you're not supposed to do it because it's not about what's funny and what's not funny. It's about it's not even about what's true and what's not true. It's about us versus them. And you can see in Colbert's, rea- Colbert's reaction to everything that Jon Stewart is saying. Colbert is trying to signal desperately to his audience, this isn't me. This is him. I'm not the bad guy. He's the bad guy. I'm not the guy giving aid and comfort to the enemy. He's the guy giving aid and comfort to the enemy. Because Colbert is afraid that the next day there's going to be a whole lot of social media reporters and other people saying, oh, Colbert is helping Trump. Colbert is being racist. Colbert is being bad. He's afraid of being identified with the outgroup because in his mind, if he's identified with the outgroup, bad things could happen to him. In other words, people who praise him now are going to scrutinize every word he says in order to trip him up, in order to make him 
look bad. So John Stewart quit in 2015, and the forces of conformism for late night comedy have only gotten stronger. Then, so John Stewart's coming out of the world of you know the early 2000s, where he's a liberal guy, but he makes the jokes that come to mind. And Colbert is coming from the world of 2021, where you have Jimmy Kimmel, who basically just he Democratic congressional staffers email him talking points, and he just reads them on the air. Because in 2021, mainstream liberal comedy, mainstream topical comedy on network shows like that is strictly partisan. And once again, when I say partisan, I don't mean liberal versus conservative. There's nothing liberal or conservative about whether the virus came out of a lab. Either it happened or it didn't happen. But it's us versus them. It's party line. And it's the way it developed that you know, saying that the lab leak might have happened or even joking about it is a bad thing done by bad people. And if you're doing it, you're being a bad person. And it doesn't even matter whether what you're saying is funny or true. Here, here's, I, I mean, I would have interjected, but everything you're saying is 100% right. And with, I don't think you can challenge it. And, but it's a great, uh, that's a great observation on your part. But I'll, I'll give you a better example that backs up your thought, Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy Fallon was playing like he was the Jay Leno school, where equal opportunity offender. That's what Johnny Carson was, best friends with the Reagans. He would make fun of Reagans, do skits about Reagans. That's just the way it was. And Jimmy Fallon had to apologize for having fun with presidential candidate Donald Trump. His ratings suffered because of it, and he had to apologize for being funny and showing respect to a candidate regardless of their party. And I don't think he's ever recovered. Well, I actually think even like Kimmel is a is a better example because Colbert at least is a political comedian. I think he's more original and he's got a better sense of the absurd than he shows because he's basically sentenced himself to a lifetime of doing Robert Mueller jokes, even if nothing really funny about Robert Mueller's happened. I mean, it's got to be really painful him being going to the writer room, writers room and being, all right, what's some Republican congressman we can make fun of today? Uh, but Jimmy Kimmel is basically kind of a sleazy, transgressive comedian by inclination. And he's just sentenced himself to a lifetime of just reading Democratic Party talking points on the and air. And crying about Obamacare and uh, falsely equating it to his son's heart condition. And part of it is these guys are these guys are making a lot of money. But I also kind of feel bad for them because they, they're, they're choosing to do a kind of comedy where they're purposely – they're purposely pandering to a relatively yep. small audience because, once again, what they're doing today could not have worked 40 years ago because the audiences were much wider back then. Now you can get by on talking to two, three million people. Right. And you used to you get like now, an you, eight. You can now, now you're getting a two. Yeah, you can narrow cast. But at the same time, it's come at a cost of the comedy sense of the transgressive and of the absurd. And, you know, what, what John Stewart was doing is he was observe, observing absurdity. Now, does John Stewart really know? Does he really believe that the virus came from a lab? Who knows? But the point is, he, he saw something that seemed silly, saw something that seemed absurd, yep. and made some pretty funny some pretty funny jokes about it. And Colbert, Colbert's reaction was to panic. But the panic wasn't because what he was saying wasn't true or wasn't funny. It's because it's not supposed to be said on this show at this time. And because I want you to I want you to hear here's Colbert on stay on doing his monologue. And just admitting what you just said, cut 36. 
Making jokes about you has been good for ratings. It's almost as if the majority of Americans didn't want you to be president. <laughs> but you know... You know who's got really bad ratings these days? You do. <laughs> Terrible approval numbers. I hear they're thinking about switching your time slot with Mike Pence. Since all of my success is clearly based on talking about you, if you really want to take me down, there's an obvious way. Resign. So, uh, I guess he was talking about these guys just survive on anti-Trump uh, anti humor. All three of them do. And now Jimmy Fallon does, too. Even you see, uh, um, you see uh, James Corden come out and just hit three anti-Trump jokes. He's reluctantly, because he thinks that's the only way uh, to do it. So where do well, they... I'm not, sure it's, I'm not sure it's just about ratings, because, once again, it's... Jon Stewart going on The Colbert Show probably did good for the show. It got a lot more social media hits than it would have if you just had some random dude doing random hackish jokes. But at the same time, the forces for conformism aren't simply drawn by ratings. I'm not even sure they're entirely drawn by ratings. They're drawn from a fear that social media mobs will come after him. Like when Colbert was desperately trying to break up Jon Stewart's timing. At one point, the uh, band actually like punctuated one of Colbert's points in order to signal to the audience that Colbert was actually right, that Colbert was funny because Jon Stewart was getting way too much of a reaction for, for, what they, for what they wanted. What they were afraid of is that social media mobs, once again, this is not the majority of the country, they'll decide that he's the enemy. And these social media mobs, they're not most Colbert viewers, they're not most Democrats, but they're overrepresented. They're um, their influence is overrepresented in places like corporate marketing departments. So if they start like a cancel Colbert tab uh, or a tag uh, hashtag rather, then it would be an annoyance to him at minimum. So he'd rather avoid it. So it's not just about it's not just about uh, ratings or even not even primarily about ratings. It's fear of social media mobs and the disproportionate influence of social media mobs. On on advertisers and other journalistic elites, because once again, if that hashtag trends that you know Stephen Colbert is racist, because once again, if you're a lot of this is in group versus out group, especially for these social so, media mobs, right? Yeah, it'll hurt it'll hurt their sponsors. Now, let me ask some Peter, what happens if he starts uh, going back and forth when Joe Biden clearly loses his face, forgets the Bill of Rights, uh, decides uh, to name his Secretary of Defense the general? Uh, forgets this general's name, and he starts doing that, kind of like Leno used to do. Do you think he loses sponsors? Do you think he loses ratings? I don't know that he loses ratings necessarily, but I do think you get, once again, it's if it was Jon Stewart, I think he would make the joke. It, but if you habituate your audience to pure partisanship and you show weakness Tampa to social media mobs, yeah. it's tough to come back from that. Not impossible, but you have to be willing to take hits. And if you look at Colbert lately, he just looks like a defeated guy. That Even though he's winning. Is, well, he's, but he's, but is he winning? I mean, he's making money. All these guys are making money, but is he doing the jokes he wants to do? He knows that he's hemmed in. I mean, he knows he can show better than he's, you know, he knows that he can show better than he's I doing. hear you. But, but at the same time, I mean, it's, it's, similar things happen. If you're, similar things happen to some so talk show hosts, conservative talk show hosts on radio, they go into certain grooves, 
and it's tough to get out of them. And if you try, well, there's going to be audience backlash. So I think, once again, with Colbert, I think the problem is less audience backlash. I don't think he's going to lose 200,000, 300,000 viewers if he makes a joke about Joe Biden falling down the stairs. That's not his problem. So he has to do a show from his house. So you don't get any feedback at all, which is never easy. But it didn't stop him. Trump's out of office And he's still revolving his whole monologue, to your point. Cut 40. Speaking of things opening up, the former president's mouth on Saturday night, Fatty Kruger gave a speech to the North Carolina Republican Party where he said a bunch of stuff, but nobody paid attention because it looked like he wore his pants backwards. Either he shares a tailor with a Ken doll or he spends so much time yanking stuff out of his keister, he just likes to have the zipper back there to make it easy. But it raised a lot of questions like... How did he zip his pants? And was his belt also on backwards? And how lucky are we that this man no longer has the nuclear codes? Okay, hysterical. I mean, I mean that's that's pathetic. Yeah, it, it's one of those things where you have to be like you'd have to be embarrassed to do that material. It's uh, some of it sounds like it was written by a by a not very bright middle school boy, but at the same time, it's kind of, when you do party line comedy, and by party line I mean. There's in-groups and there's out-groups. There's us and there's them, and my job is to make fun of them, even if that's not necessarily the best material that day. And now that you have to do this day after day for years, there's going to be times where you don't have a lot to talk about, and you just have to and you just have to make do because you're purposely because you're purposely eliminating a huge number of potential jokes because your job is to be partisan to follow to follow a party to follow a party line and it's once again he's he's purposely made himself tough made it tough on himself and you can see that john stewart part of it is john stewart retired from this kind of comedy in 2015 john stewart can do the jokes that john stewart wants to do now based on john stewart's inclinations liberals are going to like most of the jokes that john stewart thinks of but they're not going to like all of them, or more, more specifically, the most partisan and humorless liberals Peter, aren't going to like all of them. Uh, I 100% agree, and I was the victim of a lot of his jokes, and I would just say, okay, uh, you take me out of context, but it was, it was very funny. And, I, and, and he would attack our network a lot of times, and when he got personal, I thought it was too far, especially at the end. But a lot of the stuff was very creative. And I would sit there, and I, I'd watch The Daily Show every night. I, I had to. I don't have to. I look at The Daily Show now, it's an embarrassment. I look at these late night shows. The only person even worth even glimpsing at is James Corden because he's so creative and talented. And when I watched the history of late night, which was done by an outside source but aired on CNN, that made me miss it. Then when I saw your column, I go, man, you get it. That's exactly what this country needs a late night show to laugh at itself, to diffuse the tension. The person to go up the middle and be an equal opportunity offender. You'd be surprised. I guarantee you, uh, if you're willing, if you're a comedian by nature, you want to ruffle people's feathers. If you're a real comedian, stop being somebody who wants to be accepted. You're not a comedian then. You're supposed well, to. You, you've been an outcast your whole life. Real quick, your final thought. Well, part of it is that it's once again, it's, uh, I want to get away from being liberal versus conservative as opposed to conformist versus nonconformist. Like if you see comics like Dave Chappelle, Dave Chappelle's a man of the left, but he is willing to make jokes. That basically offend at some point or another everybody. Absolutely. But he had to make he had to make the decision to do that. Whereas uh, Stephen Colbert made a decision not to not to do that, and that's the difference. And that's why the column was uh, resonating. The breaking of Stephen Colbert. Peter Spiliakis, thanks so much, columnist from the National Review. Back in a moment to wrap things up. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Bre- 
breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back. I just found out that we need to know more. More to know. Sponsored by Oxford Gold Group. Call today to learn how you can protect your retirement and savings account. 833-600-GOLD. That's 833-600-GOLD. I'm not going to play the sound. I don't think we need it. I don't even think it's that big of news. I'm glad for him. Las Vegas Raiders defensive end Carl Nassib came out and said, I'm gay. So he's 28 years old. He's his daughter and a, a tremendous player. And I don't think... Um, and he put it on tape. You could hear it at your... I just don't think it matters in today's world, and that's good news. Don't you agree? No, I totally agree, actually. Eric and I were talking about that before the show. Like, what's the big deal here? But I guess it's the first player that's actually playing... What was it? Uh, Michael Sam was drafted, but he never played. Next, Senator Marco Rubio says the Pentagon UFO report will leave many questions unanswered. Big shock. Stunning. One of the few senators asking for answers won't find some. Uh, the TMZ has been investigating UFOs on the Fox Network. will air a one-hour primetime special Tuesday, June 29th at 8 o'clock. No surprise. Next. Say, yep. Next. Trump beats uh, BLM. Uh, the judge throws out the case accusing the former president of having protested move so he could walk to D.C. church for a photo op. Everyone from General Mattis on down deserves to apologize to the president. Do you think that will happen? No, in fact, General Mattis had a speech the other day where he called out the president for using the military to clear out protesters in front of the White House as he walked to the church. Not true, not true, not true. And courts have said this. Judges have said this. But the apologies won't come. Nope. Brian Kilmeade Show. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.